I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them. Leading by example. Although I didn't know him at the time, I first saw Lieutenant Colonel Justin Constantine when I was looking at the book called Portraits of Courage, published by George W. Bush. That book is paintings of wounded warriors and veterans, among other people, people that President George W. Bush felt exemplified courage. And Lieutenant Colonel Justin Constantine was one of those portraits. I thought he would be a great person to talk with for, by example, because this is a person who led before their injury and has led even more impactfully after their injury. You will hear that Lieutenant Colonel Justin Constantine was injured, hit in the head by a sniper's bullet. And many would have assumed he wouldn't have made it. And in fact, it was a terribly difficult recovery. And yet you'll also hear Justin, talk about coming to grips with the things we cannot control, and that's actually most things for most of us, and coming to terms with what we can control. And what we can control is our own attitudes, our own choices, our own decisions, our own actions. Justin Constantine is an inspiring example as well of someone who has lifted so many others up, but who does so always with deep humility and with empathy for the struggles that others face. I want to go back to the beginning a little bit, if I can. Um, One of the things we definitely don't have in common is law school. I quit (laughs) after not even the first semester was over. and. You actually graduated from law school. I thought about it. I thought about it. Trust me. <laughs> but uh, in your second year of law school, you decided to join the Marines. What? That's right. That was probably not the typical decision of your other classmates. Talk about what yeah. led you to that choice. You're sounding like my parents right now because it's <laughs> <laughs> the same questions. Although I do come from a military background, uh, my family, my actually, I, I know you have a relationship with Bob Dole, and my father fought with him in World War. Or my grandfather fought with him in World War II. Same Army unit, 10th Mountain Division. Um, so my grandfather was a colonel in in the Army. My father was a staff sergeant in the Air Force Korean War era. My brother was a career Air Force officer. He did ROTC at Georgetown. And so we have a we have a tradition in our family, but it's it's never my parents never pushed it on me. It was never anything like that. I my father introduced me to a good friend of his who was a a Marine veteran. He fought in Vietnam. He was a JAG officer. Um, and so he 
this is back in high school. I think he realized neither of his sons were going to join the military, so he, he really wanted me to. I was like his recruit. And so he gave me Jane's, one of James Webb's books, Fields of Fire, to read, which was is a great book. And I got really interested in the Marine Corps, and I applied for ROTC scholarship. I did not get it, rightfully so. And, and well, they're so, mistaken, in retrospect. <laughs> well, maybe, but uh, at the time. But um, So I went to college, went to the James Madison University, didn't think that there was an opportunity to join the military. When I was in law school, and this is one of life's weird little quirks, I was working at the school gym. A friend of mine came by. We started talking. He had to go somewhere. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go see the officer selection officer for the Marines. It's the officer recruiter. I said, what are you talking about? We're 27. We're way too old. And he said, no, there was a special program for lawyers. And I said, tell him I'll be there the next day. And I went down the next day. And... Uh, this is, this is actually April 1st, April Fool's Day, but I submitted my package. They said, well, we're kind of we're jammed up for the summer. We already have things in place. Uh, let's see what we can do. They liked a lot of the things I had done. Uh, in, in June, they called and said, can you get to Quantico in a week? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I said, I can. I packed my car, canceled my summer job, drove from, I was in law school at University of Denver, drove back here. And went to Oscar Kennedy School and finished that summer and went back and finished law school and then came into the Marine Corps after graduation. That's so, a great story. <laughs> it was it was a lot of neat little coincidences. In fact, the guy I rode down the bus with to Quantico is one of my best friends. He's still in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and uh, so it, I'm not sure if it was meant to be or how, how it happened, but just it did. You know, one of the things I tell people is um, – when opportunity knocks, don't be afraid to walk through the door. <laughs> For sure. And at the very least, you weren't afraid to walk through the door when opportunity <laughs> That's knocked. That's right. That's right. And and I was excited. You know, I, I knew that there would be great experience as a lawyer in the Marine Corps. Uh, I already wanted to be in the Marines from before. And so on, on active duty, I did criminal defense, criminal prosecution, really enjoyed all the trial work. Uh, and I was on active duty for uh, about six years and really enjoyed that. So when you're deployed, uh, in October of 2006, you suffer a grievous injury. Tell us a little bit about that, about what happened. Sure. So I was in the reserves at the time. I I joined a local reserve unit here. It's actually a reserve unit of all lawyers teaching Marines the law of war and the Geneva Convention when they're getting ready to deploy, so they would feel comfortable knowing what they could and could not do over there. But in the spring of 2006, another unit here put out a request for Marine officers for the deployment, so I transferred to deploy with them as what's called a civil affairs team leader. And so I wasn't there as a, as a, a lawyer. We were attached to a Marine infantry battalion out of Camp Lejeune. So once we got into Iraq in September of 2006, I was, as a team leader, I had a small team of eight Marines. I had uh, all from around here, and they, they were they were fantastic. They, most of them had already been to Iraq before. I hadn't, so I could lean heavily on them. We supported the battalion commander, Colonel DeGrossier. He and I had actually played Marine Corps rugby together on when I was on active duty, so that was kind of cool. And... He really, this is a very kinetic time in Iraq. This is right before the surge of 2007. Mm-hmm. The insurgency was very powerful at the time. We we try to convince local Iraqis to fight against those insurgents, and as civil affairs 
uh, team, we were trying to rebuild destroyed infrastructure and put them to work to do that, to inject money in the local economy. And, you know, the last thing you want is a bunch of young men sitting around being upset with nothing yep. to do. Yep. And so we wanted to help them work and, and rebuild um, the infrastructure there. It was tough, though, because they'll be visited at night with very real death threats from those insurgents. So, so we had troops in combat every day there, of course. We had uh, firefights. We were fighting snipers. We hit uh, improvised explosive devices every day. Um, we were on one of our typical patrols on October 18, 2006, which is what you were asking about. And it, frankly, it was like any other day there. It was over 100 degrees. We had 65 pounds of protective armor on, the very arduous conditions, long patrols. We knew there was a sniper in the area. He'd already killed a few of our Marines there. Uh, we had uh, counter-sniper teams out looking for him. Uh, he was actually from Yemen. He was, he was a skilled, you know, trained professional. And we had a reporter with us there that day. He was there doing a story about the colonel and, and the whole unit. And I had noticed he... We, when he, we stopped by a couple of different units earlier in the day. The police chief of the Iraqi police station, they had been shot up the night before by the insurgents. So the Colonel, Colonel Grossi wanted to talk to them how to better defend themselves. We went to see a family to pay them for um, some injuries they had suffered, and we want to help compensate them for that. And I noticed the reporter was standing very still during those times, which is a terrible idea if a sniper may be targeting you or traditionally taught to walk in a circle eight or just keep moving at least a little bit. And he and I were riding in the same vehicle that day. It was supposed to be a sergeant major, and he couldn't make it. So the, the reporter was in sitting next to me, and we got to our last stop. And I, as he walked away from the Humvee, I said, Hey, Jay, uh, not really thinking about it. I said, Jay, keep moving. Don't forget about that sniper. We don't want something to happen to you. And kept walking. Jay told me later that based on that, he immediately took a big step forward. And a second layer of bullet came in where his head had been and hit the wall between us. Before I could react, the next round hit me behind my left ear and exploded out of my mouth, causing incredible damage. And I don't remember that. I don't remember. I remember the stops earlier in the day. There was so much blood, though, and I immediately went down that uh, the Marines around me thought I'd been killed. When the Navy corpsman came running over, he rolled me over. I was no longer breathing. But... Colonel Grossier came running over. The rest of the Marines um, got in a perimeter formation to try to shoot at the sniper, try to identify where he was. It was very sunny, Jay, like it always was, so it's hard to see in the distance, and the light was reflecting off the windows, so it's easy for a sniper to hold up in a, in a good hiding place. Well, George, the corpsman, George Grant, rolled me over, um, was able to bring me back, and was able to cut open my throat. He performed an emergency breathing, a rescue breathing on me, even though a bullet had just gone through my mouth. He cut open my throat and performed what's, in layman's terms, a, an emergency tracheotomy so I wouldn't drown my own blood. The rest of the Marines did everything they were supposed to. Another young Marine, 21-year-old Marine, Corporal Bueller, drove us at 70 miles an hour down roads that we knew had bombs hidden on them. If we hit one going that fast, we definitely would have died, but he knew he had to get me to the aid station, so... All these Marines put their lives on the line for me, got me to the aid station, what they call the golden hour, which is so critical after a traumatic injury. And and it was kind of one of those, probably an iconic picture where, you know, I was in the middle with my arms over the two guys and we walked into the aid station and then the doctors there took over. And 
I'll, I'll take a break from talking, but I'll, I'll tell you that a year ago I was invited by those some of those doctors uh, to come speak at the Marine Corps birthday ball. I didn't know, I knew it was the first, the first medical battalion. I, I didn't know it was the same folks who had operated on me. It wasn't until I got there and they told me that, you know, we've been tracking you, we're excited to have you. So I had a chance to say thank you to them and get some details. And the, and the, the commanding officer is a Navy captain. He wrote me a probably a three-page letter. He remembered me from that day. He said, we saw thousands of Marines while we were here, and I remember three of them, and you're one of them. And he wrote a long letter, you know, about the details of that day. And I didn't even read the letter for a week because I knew it was going to be very emotional. I got home and let it sit on my desk, and, and then I read it, and, and it was very emotional, but very detailed. And I really appreciate it because I had talked to other folks um, but didn't know those details and didn't know how close it was. You know, he, he said after they did their operations and put me on the helicopter to go to the main ER at a different base, he didn't think I was going to make it. And, and really, he said no one else had survived a gunshot wound like that, but they were able to take what they learned from operating on me and develop some protocols that saved other Marines after that. So, you know, who, know, who knows why these things happen? But mm. uh, they were all incredible people that day. Have you always been able to tell that story so calmly? Yeah. Well, I know I know it sounds like it now, but absolutely not. You know, I'm I, sure not. I'm yeah. just I'm sitting here so amazed that you can describe these details so yeah calmly. Well, it was. You know, I mean, it takes my breath away listening to you, much less experiencing it. Um, yeah, you're spot on. I mean, it's, it's been 12 years now, and so. I do tell that story now. I am a motivational seeker, so I rely, you know, it's part of what I talk about. But, you know, when I, when I first, this is too soon, but when I first woke up in the hospital and realized what had happened, I was incredibly embarrassed about it. I felt like, like every other winter warrior. I want to be back in, in Iraq with my Marines. I wanted to, uh, I, I felt it was mission failure. I, didn't, I told Dahlia and my parents not to invite my friends there. I didn't want anyone to see me like that, which is it's a, it's sad, you know. It's, you know, I had survivor's guilt. No one else was, was injured at the time, but I just felt bad. Um, I got over it, obviously, but my head was horribly disfigured for years. And we go out in public. I probably didn't go to a restaurant for a year um, because it's so hard to eat, and it was just a spectacle. People would look at me, clearly wondering what happened. Not not in a malignant way, but, you know, just wondering. And I didn't want to deal with that. You know? But then I went to counseling for post-traumatic stress for a year and a half uh, every week with a psychologist, which was incredibly beneficial through a nonprofit called Given Hour. And that kind of turned things around for me. Uh, I, like a lot of other Men and women who have post-traumatic stress or PTSD, I didn't, it didn't really kick in at first. It was six months later, a year later, when I started seeing the symptoms. Dahlia identified them and really encouraged me to seek the help I needed. And she was exactly right. She's a teacher, and she had been trained in this already. And so that was very helpful. And having her there in a very supportive role at that time made, made a huge difference. And so... Um, I could talk with him about what had happened or why I was feeling a certain way or just talk about whatever, but it wasn't it wasn't talking to my family about it, it wasn't talking to Dahlia, it was just talking to someone who I saw once a week who I didn't have to see again, you know, at dinner or whatever, and I could just get things off my chest. Um, a lot of it initially related to my injury, but then a lot of it was just 
what a typical day was like, or maybe some other challenges I was facing, or trying to talk clearly, or whatever it was. And so having that resource, which unfortunately a lot of our veterans and other folks in America don't take advantage of, um, I did, and it made a big difference. And so that's a long answer to your question of how I got comfortable talking about it, and that was a big part of it at the beginning. And why do you think people are reluctant to take advantage of resources like that? It obviously made such a difference for you as it makes for all of us when we need someone to talk to about something. Well, I think think we know that there is a certain stigma around mental health, not just in the military, but I would say probably more so in the military. But certainly in America, and I can't speak of what's going on in other countries, but in America we have a problem addressing mental health issues. The fact that a lot of people still think and we have conversations about physical and mental being two separate things as if it's not all connected and you know physical fitness is important mental fitness is just important having a good attitude for me having a good attitude about my recovery was a big part of my overall recovery and there's no doubt there's a strong linkage there it just makes sense but i think uh I think there is, I know there's a statement because studies bear this out. Studies bear it out uh, with veterans. When we talk to employers about hiring veterans, they are a certain amount of concern about PTSD. And they, they think if you're a veteran, you must have PTSD. And therefore, the only thing that could mean is something bad. Not that the overwhelming people with PTSD are actually civilians or that people, there are many thousands like me who have gone to counseling and come out stronger on the other side. We don't talk about that for some reason. And so there's just a stigma about mental health as if you're some, you know, quote unquote, less of a person if you have that challenge or, or, or working through that. We don't question if you fall off a ladder and break your arm, go right to the hospital, but we would never, you know, make that immediate um, analysis to go seek mental health. Uh, and it's unfortunate. And yet you must have an incredible impact more than you realize when you talk publicly about this to veterans or anyone, not that it's comparable at all, but I remember when I uh, was battling cancer and first appeared publicly with bald, or when I first admitted publicly that our daughter had died of uh, addiction, the, the response from people was, oh, thank you for saying this so that I can talk about what's going on in my life. That's right. So it's so important when people hear you say, when people tell your story, (laughs) when people hear your story and hear you say, I had PTSD, I sought help, it made all the difference in the world for me. Well, I like saying that because I I do get positive feedback. Even if, for instance, I was at a I can't remember where it was recently. I spoke to an event, an event, a corporate audience, but there was there was a veteran in the audience, and he came over afterwards, and he was had tears in his eyes. Clearly, had had some issues that he needed to work through, and we had a quick conversation about PTSD because I had mentioned it in my presentation, or there was a Q and A afterwards, or maybe someone asked about it, and I agree with you. You you could see that. He knew it was something he needed to do and deserved to do, but it wasn't until we had that conversation that he's like, you know what, I'm going to go do that. And it was unfortunate that it took that because I don't know how long he's had. I don't know how it didn't just didn't happen yesterday, whatever he's doing. It's been years. And it, a lot of people struggle for years. Um, 
and because they don't think it's okay to go seek that help. And I, I hope, you, you say I have influence on people, I hope that's true. I hope people realize that it's the right thing to do and it can really turn things around for you in your lives. Where do you get your inspiration? What, I mean, you have bad days. We of all course, have yeah, bad of days. Um, sometimes people <clears throat> say to me, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning? What yeah. gets you going in the morning? My, my answer is there's a, there's a certain look that people get in their eyes. It's the same look, no matter who it is, no matter where in the world it is. When people realize they can do something they didn't think they could do, people get a certain look. Yeah. And for me, that look is fuel. I see that look, and I want more of that look. Yeah. So we all, when we have our bad days... We all have to find inspiration. Yeah. Where do you find yours? Because you've inspired so many. Oh, well, you're right. I certainly have bad days. We all, we all do. I, you'd think I wouldn't get mad sitting in traffic after I've been through, but I do. <laughs> yeah, me too. It, it, yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's an issue, you know. Um, but you you can understand this better than anyone. You know, I don't want to waste a minute of my life. You know, I'm lucky to still be here. It could have all changed. It should have changed, gone a different way. But for the grace of God, I'm here. And so I don't want to be a pinball that's bouncing around, reacting to other things. I want to control where I'm going in life. And so uh, my wife and I do have a journal that we try to stick to. It's a gratitude journal, and it's also a way to plan out our weeks at a time. But, you know, we, we try to list out things, if not on a daily basis, at least a weekly basis, of things that we are grateful for. And I think just going through that simple exercise really puts things in perspective because I could be having a bad day, but then then I step back and I think, I'm in a beautiful apartment here in Manhattan, two blocks from Central Park, and it's great weather, and the heat works, and, you know, uh, I have good food here, and all these things that it's easy to take for granted until you take a second to look back and say, well, you know, life, life is pretty great. Maybe this business deal didn't work out or, or whatever it is, but who cares? You know, there's other fundamental things. My wife is here. My family's healthy. I'm doing fine. And so I, I do try to, um, it's not necessarily inspirational to me, but I do try to remind, remind myself of the good things that are going around me on a daily basis, day in and day out. And, and I, I so understand not everyone's in the same position, of course, but and I can't see for anyone else, but I bet if you look hard, you can find some really good things going on around you, some things that push you forward. So we were we were talking about your uh, injury and the very difficult recovery process you went through, and now you're at the point where you can talk about that and lift others up and lead others by example. And then a president of the United States decided that he wanted to paint you. <laughs> did a good job. Because he repre <laughs> you represented to him a portrait and courage. What, what is it like to have a president of the United States decide to paint you, choose to paint you, and then paint you? Well, it's... Very incredible to me. You know, I, I, I come from 
small town here, Fairfax, you know, just a regular kid growing up. And so the fact that I've had the opportunity to meet President Bush a number of times and spend time with him and, you know, went through a leadership series that he and President Clinton and his father and LBJ all put together, or the libraries did. So I've and I played in his golf tournament a couple of times. I got to know him, you know, pretty well as far as an outsider like me can. But he, you're right. He did pick every one of us in that in that book, and we all we all went down for a special unveiling of it uh, down in Dallas, and it was pretty incredible. Go up there and stand on the wall, take a picture of myself next to this picture that a former president of the United States uh, painted. Uh, first and foremost, he become quite a good painter in just yes, a few he years. Has. I mean, yes, it's, he has. It's quite admirable what he's able to do. And but with and so I looked at all the all the pictures there and he really was able to capture considering he's only been doing it a few years, but a lot of the nuances of the warriors uh, injuries on the, that they have in, in those pictures. Uh, whether it's just someone hitting a golf shot, but I know who that guy is and I know he limps because he has a prosthetic leg, and he, he hasn't standing that way. To, you know, it, it, you see those things in the pictures. And and I think he picked the ones he did because, and, and there are probably hundreds and hundreds of others he could have selected. He had to limit it to a certain number. But this is a book, Portraits of Courage, is not about feeling sorry for anyone or anything like that, but I think it's, it's a testament to how strong people can be and despite some some tough injuries that everyone in that book, their lives are radically changed, but they are strong people and they hopefully are inspiring others who pick up the book and read it to say, you know what, here's what a bad day looks like, uh, but look what's happened since then. And, so, and that, that's kind of my message, and I don't want to see for President Bush, of course, but it is an honor to be in that book. And uh, I know a lot of people who I've never, I've never met before, but I meet them at an event. They say, hey, I saw you in, in the book. And it was great to see. And, and so it's, it's out there for sure. Well, I am quite certain of the reason you're in the book. The reason you're in the book is because your courage is an inspiration to others. It's an inspiration to him. And you inspire people every day. There's no doubt about that. You know, uh, another similarity that we have, um, you grew up in a very, or you worked in the military in a very hierarchical That's right. institution. <laughs> I grew up working in corporate America, yeah. very hierarchical. Um, and when I started out at the very bottom of that hierarchy, I thought... Leadership was about position and title and the size of your office and, you know, <clears throat> all those trappings of leadership. Right. And I learned along the way it doesn't have anything to do with that. I know from reading about you and listening to you that you also know that leadership isn't about position and title, even right. in a really hierarchical organization. <laughs> That's right. How would you define leadership if it's not position or title? Well, I, I was I agree with everything you said. Of course, I do think you know we can on one level identify a leader by their title because there's a it's, it's denoted that they are in charge of a certain amount of people by their what's following their name or preceding their name. But 
I, I agree. It's not about trapping. It's but about inspiring and uh, inspiring and moving people to together accomplish a, a mission. In the military, it's true uh, to a certain extent that because we can give orders and we can mandate that they're followed, that that doesn't exist in the private sector in the same way. But no... None of my mentors, no good leaders I know from the military rely on their rank, what's on their collar, to make sure the job is done. It's because the troops around them respect what they've done. They know that they would never ask, you know, in my case, the Marines to do something they themselves aren't willing to do. And I think that's what it's at the core, taking care of your people, showing from the front, leading from the front on what it looks like and what you expect, and living your values. All these things that are that are demonstrable and, and people can look at them and say, yes, he or she is, is walking the walk and talking the talk, not sitting in the office, sending out emails, you know? And, and so I saw that very up close and personal in Iraq with Colonel Grosset, who had been a sergeant on the enlisted side at this point. He was a lieutenant colonel. He retired as a colonel. He, the Marines there would follow him everywhere because he was always in front, and he treated them with respect. It wasn't, you know, follow me because I'm a colonel. It's because, hey, I'm here to lead you, and I'm going to be the first one in that door, regardless of what my rank is. And it, that, of course, exists in the private sector, too, in a, in a different way. But when you were leading your people... You probably practice very similar techniques as what Colonel Grosset did. You know, it's interesting. I sometimes distinguish between management and leadership. Yeah. So a manager is someone, by the way, they may have big title and position, and right. they may be in command of big groups of people, but a manager is someone who does the best they can within existing conditions. Yeah. A leader is someone who changes things for the better. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> would you and by the way i think there are people who have titles of leadership but what they're doing is presiding and managing yeah rather than leading right sometimes i say people will sometimes say to me well you know when you're a ceo you just can order people to do things i said well yeah that's true up to a point but it's a little bit like as a parent when you have to say to your kid do it cuz i say so right. you've lost the argument <laughs> that's I mean, right you're, that's you're, right you're not changing things for the better you're just getting something done yeah and i agree um, it seems like there's a lot of change going on around us all the time now i'm sure it's always been like that you know there is a lot of change going on in business and personal with social media technology uh, you know the way Uber came out of where that come from, where Airbnb come from, you know, Amazon's doing things. So any any CEO, but any leader all the way down the chain has to be comfortable with embracing change, has to be innovative. There's no way you can succeed in the business world today just from sitting inside your office and, as you said, managing and, and working on the status quo because there's every industry is too competitive. There's too many innovative people out there coming up with great ideas, and you have to be comfortable with that. The work that I'm doing with veteran employment, that's our mindset. Is we want to be disruptors. We're embracing technology. We're doing new things because, frankly, the old solutions aren't good enough, and that's that cuts across all industry, I think. Mm-hmm. There's so much about leadership that's a choice, in my opinion. Right. Uh, it's a choice to decide not to waste a minute of your life. Yeah. It's a choice to be grateful for what you have 
as opposed to resentful for what you don't have. Yeah, two very different ways of looking at it. Yes, it's a choice to be courageous, actually. It's a choice to lift others up. You've made a choice to spend your time lifting others up, inspiring others, helping others, making sure others have employment. Those are all choices. Um, And I bring that up because I think often one of the reasons we all have a bad day is um, we feel out of control. Uh, We feel choices have been taken away from us. The truth is, I learned this when I had cancer. I learned this when our daughter was addicted. There are a lot of things out of our control. Most things. I mean, you were not in control when the sniper's (laughs) bullet hit you. Right. In fact, to your point, most things we don't control at all. Yeah. But we do control our choices. Mm-hmm. How to respond, how to react, where to go. I think we, we can we one thing we can definitely control is what's inside our head. You know, barring some other issues. But we can control how we think and how we react to things and as you said, choices that we make. I can't control the weather, I can't control you know, the person across the table from me, how they're gonna react, but I can control how I react and plans I make and, and efforts I undertake. So I, I try to remind myself of that. Is there, there are only so many things I can control, but the ones I can control are important. Yes. The other thing that I think we can control, and you in your life you obviously do this, I do think we can choose what to fill our hearts up with. Mm-hmm. So we can fill our hearts up with the people who tear us down. Right. Or we can fill our hearts up with the people who lift us up. And one of the things that I so appreciated when you were telling your story about your injury and your recovery is you have filled your heart with all of the people who lifted you up, who helped you, who you've filled your heart with all those people. You've not filled your heart with maybe the person who said a bad word or an unkind thing about your face at some point along the way. Right, right. That's a good point and one I haven't really discussed too much before, but... um, I, I'm only here, this I have said plenty of times, I'm only here because so many people bend over backwards to support me. And, and you know, the Corman Grant, 10 seconds later, the doctors, Dahlia, who was then my girlfriend, not my wife, girlfriend who had just started a PhD program at Cambridge University in England, who dropped out of that program to come be with me in the hospital, put her life on the hold uh, for really what ended up being six or seven years until we moved to New York so she could... Um, started a PhD at Columbia University. That's why we're there now. So that's an incredible sacrifice. But the dozens of veteran service organizations, the people at Winter Warrior Project, the uh, businesses that have hired me, so many folks have done so much for me. I was ne- uh, never was I upset at the sniper, which sounds odd, but I, I had two weapons, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. I w- we were looking for him too. I was ready to do the same thing. I was never upset at that for, for whatever reason. I was upset I was injured, but I never had this, oh, I wish I could go and kill him and do that. That did happen. <laughs> you know, uh, the other Marines there saw that, but I was, for whatever reason, I, I never was. Um, I don't waste time as you said, filling my heart with with the bad things because we're only here for a certain amount of time. I want to surround myself with people who are trying to push forward, who are trying to have a positive influence on others. I'm well aware that even in the hospital, I had, I was privileged to a certain extent that I was a senior, I was a major at the time, so I was probably the senior guy there, except for the staff. 
Uh, I had a woman there next to me who loved me, was there every single day. I didn't think my life was over or my career was over because I was injured because I had already left the military once before. A lot of the younger guys around me didn't have any of those. They didn't have family there. Their families couldn't afford to take time off to be there. They they did think their careers and lives were over, and and they were they were young. I was I was 37 at the time. They were 20. So I had some built-in things, and I always remember this, and I and I try to remind myself that that's going on all over the place. Where maybe I have some built-in things that, if I'm frustrated with someone, just remind myself, well, I don't know what they just went through. I don't know what support system they have, and so. I try to keep things professional with other folks. I try to remain optimistic, and, and I do think it rubs off on others. My, my wife, when she walks down the street in New York, she smiles at everyone, and they smile back. In New York, that doesn't happen a whole lot, but you know, <laughs> just people see the energy, and they respond to it. One of the critical aspects of leadership, I think, is the ability to collaborate with others, which you obviously do, yeah. but the ability to collaborate, I think, is grounded in both humility and empathy. And I'm reminded of that because in all of the things you've said, you're obviously a humble man, although you have accomplished so much, and others look at you and say, this is a famous man, and you're <laughs> an empathetic wrong. man. <laughs> yeah. You're empathetic. You oh, yeah. said, gee, if somebody frustrates me, I don't know what's going on right. in their lives. I don't know. That humility and empathy sometimes we overlook, but it's such a critical ingredient in effective leadership. I, I couldn't agree more. And I was not always like this. It wasn't until I was injured, I would say. I mean, I've always had a caring heart, but I was never empathetic to where I wonder what happened to that homeless person I just talked to up the street from me in New York. Or, or you know, I really listen when people are talking to hear what they're really saying. I, I went through a a course to be a, a coach and learned a lot about being an active listener and asking open-ended questions and, you know, putting your thoughts to the back and just being a sponge to what's going on. I think that is a critical part of leadership because if you're not practicing, you know, what they call management while walking around and knowing your people, interacting with them and, and listening to what they care about, if you don't know their family's names or, or what they do on the weekend or things like that, that we take for granted in the military, frankly. We know all about each other, and that's, that's an important part of it. Uh, I, I don't know how you can effectively lead. I don't know how you could get people to keep working with and for you over an extended period of time if you don't care about them. And, you know, it's, it's a trite expression, but we're all in this together. You know, this is it's not just some random experiment here. So I'm not trying to save everyone out there, but I'm just trying to lead a life that, that's... That, you know, I, I'm trying to lead from the front, and, and I, uh, that way I'm helping other people along the way, and I know I'm pushing myself in the right direction. You lift others up by example. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of people listening to this who might be thinking, I want to help veterans. I want to help veterans. What would you say to those people? Yeah, that, that is a good question. A lot of people ask that, and that's it's a refreshing. It's, it's refreshing. I was on the phone earlier with a friend of mine who's, uh, he runs the Vietnam Veterans of America. So he's obviously a Vietnam vet there. It's still staying on our nation's honor what they went through. Um, America's learned, though, I believe. Wh whether you support the war or not, people can differentiate between the war and the war fighter. I've seen that, left, right, and center. And so 
the questions people ask if they're employers is say, we want to hire veterans, where are they? And other people say, How, what can I do? And there are a number of things you can do. If you're an employer, uh, take the time to learn about the business case for hiring veterans. Not because you think it's a patriotic thing to do, but what we bring to the table, day in and day out. Uh, and if you're not in a position to do that um, outside of the business world, then, may, then maybe find a couple veteran groups. Uh, there are there are many out there. The I guess this is the the plus and minus of technology and, and the internet. And, and after 9/11, there's been they say 40,000 nonprofits to support veterans. So while that's a great thing that so many people care, it can be overwhelming for people who want to donate to know where to do that too, but also for the veterans to know where to turn for resources. So if you're at a company, for instance, and you're trying to figure out what what uh, group to support in your community, turn to the veterans who work there. If you have a veteran employee resource group, ask them. But get get your whole community behind it if you can. If you're just out there listening and you and you want to donate, there are, I don't really want to pick one, uh, but I would say in the Wounded Warrior Committee, Wounded Warrior Project is, is a fantastic organization. I was a Wounded Warrior and what we call them alumni, folks who belong to the organization for years, and then later I joined the board of directors, but I'm still a Wounded Warrior alumni, so I see on both sides the great work they do. But there are a number of others as well, and there's, there are large ones and small ones. No one, no one is asking, no one's demanding that you donate money. I'm certainly not. If you do, that's great. There's a lot of small group efforts. I think, like politics is local, so is so is support, uh, so is everything really. But up in you know one one I support is called the GI Go Fund up in New York. I'm part of that. We're raising money to help with. Uh, uh, we're opening a veteran. It's a incubator for veteran-owned businesses. So veteran entrepreneurship helping homeless veterans, and then also a food and toy drive going into a tough time of the year. And so that's the things that we focus on there. And so that's just one example, and because it's a local example up in New York, but it has a sort of a national reach. Every community across America, there are groups like that. So I think people like seeing a change around them, and so I would encourage them, find a, if you don't want to give to one of these big groups like Wind the Warrior Project, although I encourage that, but look to a local one in your neighborhood. There are there are all over there. You just have to open up, talk to a veteran, find one, and you can be a part of change in your community. People closest to the problem usually know best how to solve they those do. problems, <laughs> and so often real change happens from the bottom up. That's so right. that's great advice. Well, thank thank you. you so much. This no, has Carla, just been you. such a wonderful conversation. No, thank you. I couldn't agree more. That's all for today. But you can always check out more episodes online at carlyfiorina.com or on iTunes. Please subscribe so you can get all of the episodes. And while you're at it, please give us a review. We'd really appreciate five stars. That review will help more people join our conversations. You can find more information and keep up to date on new episodes and offers by joining our email list at carlyfiorina.com slash by example. You can also send us feedback there or on Facebook and Twitter at Carly Fiorina. Also, go to carlyfiorina.com to pre-order my new book called Find Your Way. It's about leadership, unleashing your own power, and unlocking your highest potential. Next time on By Example, former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example.